Hello everyone and welcome back to the Bridgehead. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. We are going to be talking to somebody about a pretty controversial topic or more accurately a quite a few controversial topics which I'm sure is surprising to nobody who listens to this show regularly considering the fact that of course we discuss controversial topics on this show all the time. But today we're going to be talking about something that I haven't addressed that extensively uh, on the show. I have written about this issue over at thebridgehead.ca on the blog a few times. But we're going to be talking about the migrant crisis, the demographic collapse in Europe, and the crisis of identity that's currently taking place right across Europe. I'm sure, as all of you will have noticed, that identity politics, uh, both in Europe and the United States and in Canada, has been a, a hot topic for a couple of years now. A lot of people, of course, are leveling blame uh, at both the left and the right for tapping into identity politics. And so today we're going to be discussing a few of these issues with the brilliant British journalist Douglas Murray. Uh, you, Many of you might recognize him. His most recent book, which we'll be discussing uh, today, came out in 2017, and it's called The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, and Islam. He actually published one of his first books at only the age of 19, while he was in his second year at Oxford University. It was a, a biography of Lord Alfred Douglas and was described by Christopher Hitchens as a masterly biography. And he actually wrote a play as well called Nightfall about the Swedish diplomat Rael Wallenberg, who happens to be one of my heroes. Wallenberg uh, was responsible for saving many Jews from the Holocaust. Uh, he's written also uh, Neoconservatism, Why We Need It, published in 2005, and uh, Bloody Sunday, Truth, Lies, and the Seville Inquiry, which was published in 2011. You can find his writing all over the place. He's written for Standpoint, The Wall Street Journal, and he's found most often in The Spectator. One of the uh, articles he wrote recently that I enjoyed the most was his analysis of a Jordan Peterson speech while Peterson was in the UK uh, promoting his new book, 12 rules for life. So Murray is, has written on these topics and his research in these areas is just extensive. Uh, he's gone to refugee camps, he's talked to the migrants who are here, he's talked to the politicians who were, were making the decisions uh, about letting them in. He's really analyzed the backlash and he's especially interesting because while he is himself not an atheist, he was a practicing Anglican growing up, but like so many other Anglicans, he has since left the church. But when he analyzes the identity crisis uh, across Europe, he speaks very much along the same lines as Ayan Hirsi Ali, who says, I would rather live in a culture built on Judeo-Christian values than a culture built on Islamic values. And he actually describes himself sometimes as a cultural Christian, sometimes as a Christian atheist, simply because he recognizes that the Judeo-Christian principles that underpin virtually every European society are fundamentally the foundation of Western civilization itself. And if we find Western civilization to be something worth protecting, then we have to look at those Judeo-Christian principles. We have to uh, respect that Christian heritage. And we need to ha uh, start having a discussion about what it is exactly that we decided to throw away when we abandoned all of these things. A very fascinating discussion. Uh, I myself have found it very interesting that quite a few 
secularists and atheists have uh, actually come to this position. They've taken a look at uh, Western civilization. They've taken a look at the difficulties that mass influxes of migrants who do not hold the same values and come from very different backgrounds. They, they look at the difficulties that this poses uh, to different European cultures, and they're losing the edge that was really brought out by people like Christopher Hitchens, who claimed that you know Christianity was a poisonous religion, and uh, Richard Dawkins, who bloviates on about Christianity and how dangerous it is as well. But people like Douglas Murray and Ian Hersey Ali are much more thoughtful about this issue because they're trying to grapple uh, with identity politics. They're trying to look at the crises that have gripped Europe and, and to some degree now also are gripping North America, although in a different way. And they're taking a look at how exactly that we can address these and, and, and where we go from here. So uh, without further introduction, I'd like to present this conversation with the British journalist Douglas Murray. I've been following the the so-called migration crisis of 2015, both before that and after it. And this book is really the result of those travels and those attempts to get to what I regard as being the very deep questions that lie underneath not just this story, but the European continent at this stage in its history. What surprised you in the process of that research? Your book seemed far more reasonable than most people's books because you tried to be brutally honest about the problem without demonizing uh, leaders who, who did bring in, in refugees, even if their, their charitable feelings were at times misplaced. So what really surprised you in that process? Well, all sorts of things. I mean, I've been writing around these areas for many years, and so much of the sort of groundwork I was familiar with, um, in particular the, the way in which, as I say in the book, that there is no conspiracy to this, there is no um, you know, grand scheme. It is rather simply the result of several generations now of European politicians putting off for their successors uh, problems that they would rather not deal with themselves because they're too difficult. But I suppose if there was one thing that surprised me. It was the sheer extent of the, uh, the consequences of the events that unfolded at such incredible speed in 2015, but which had been going on, as I say, for many years before. This is a year where, you know, up to 1.5 million people entered Germany alone. Uh, Sweden and Germany added almost 3% to their population that year. Wow. And you know, the, the sheer variety of human misery, among other things, that this entailed surprised me, uh, to the extent that one can still be surprised about these things. But, but what also surprised me in some ways was the fact that there was so little desire in the places that I went to and in the politicians I spoke with, who were politicians from across the political mainstream, as well as to what are now the fringes. I was amazed at the lack of, un uh, lack of willingness to recognize the scale and the depth and the extent of the problem, because so many of them uh, are basically, and this is familiar, I know, to all of your listeners in all sorts of other contexts, so many politicians are very, very fearful of tomorrow morning's headlines. Mm -hmm. um, and the easiest way when it comes to a crisis like the migration crisis of 2015 and the run-up to it and the years that have followed is that the easiest thing 
is to avoid bad headlines tomorrow. We now know that one of the reasons Chancellor Merkel, uh, I speculate is in my book, we now know it for sure. One of the reasons why she decided to suspend normal border procedures on the last day of August 2015 is because she didn't want photographs going around the world of German border guards repelling uh, migrants. Right. Now, as I say, that's very understandable in the short term. But I was amazed at the lack of thought in the, from the, the chancelleries of Europe about the lack of thought about what all of this would mean in the long run. Now, you've, you said uh, that you've been covering these issues for a long time, and I, and I heard you say, I forget if I heard you say this in an interview or I read it in one of your columns, but you said that one of the first things that you started to notice was a treatment of Jews and how they were referred to. Uh, explain to our listeners a bit about that. That's something that's a little bit more foreign uh, here in Canada. Well, one of the presumptions that has prevailed in, in, in Europe in recent years has been that effectively when people come into our continent, uh, I'm from Britain, as you can tell, um, but I think of it as our continent, um, that when people come into our continent, we, they basically absor- absorb the values of Europe, that, that they become like us. Um, I, I think this can happen, um, but it's not as common as people think or hope, and the opposite is also the case. There are a lot of people who have, frankly, no likelihood of becoming European, um, or, to put it a different way, they have the risk of repeating mistakes that Europeans have themselves made in the past. And one of these examples I give, yes, is with the extraordinary, extraordinary phenomenon of an increase in anti-Semitism across the continent, which has undoubtedly uh, derived from the recent arrivals. And this phenomenon is one that is so sensitive that all officials always deny it until the point when they can deny it no longer. And that happened actually at the end of uh, my book. I describe one German minister, the interior minister of Germany, who says after they've already opened the doors to, you know, people from uh, the Middle East, from sub-Saharan Africa, North Africa, uh, he, he, he says actually... If there's going to be this increase in anti-Semitism, he says, we don't want more anti-Semites coming to Germany. And it's impossible to, 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 to not have an almost dark laugh at this, at the, at the sight of Germany, which, to my mind, has partly been doing this in order to absolve its, its ongoing guilt for its behavior in the 20th century. In the 21st century, trying to absolve that guilt, and in the process, um, arguably, actually bringing back things that we had hoped we would not see again in Europe. I'm speaking about things like the fact that in Swedish uh, towns there is you know, walk a Jew to synagogue day, walk a Jewish neighbor to synagogue so that they're not attacked. Wow. This sort of thing we had not imagined in our worst nightmares, but people should have expected, as I say, as a very minimum, that people, when they walk into a country, do not necessarily just immediately absolve, uh, 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 sorry, absorb uh, the air and the traditions and the thoughts of that country. And this is obviously concerning for a number of reasons, both for the core problem itself and then the rise of identity politics in response. And identity politics, as of course you know, is something that here in North America we've been we've 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 been seeing a lot of, and it's a little bit different here. So there's here in Canada this very very tiny fledgling, but they're very loud. 
a group of, of people that are talking about, you know, Canada for the Canadians, and this is all sort of ridiculous because Canada has never been a remotely homogenous country. But that's different in Europe. Uh, my family is Dutch on, on both sides of my family as far back as we can trace. And, and there is a distinct Dutch culture. And, you know, and so when you say Holland or the Netherlands for the Dutch or, or you know, Britain for the British, these statements start to ring a lot more true than they do uh, from genuinely immigrant nations like Canada and the United States. How is that taking shape in Europe? Well, this is a very interesting point you raise because um, I mention Canada as well as America and indeed Australia in the book because all of these countries also share some of these. It's not, it's not enough, to my mind, to simply look at what is happening. It's also necessary to look at why it's happening. And these countries, including your own, suffer from some of the very same, what I describe as thought diseases, that now have been racking Europe. And the lead one of these is the idea that uh, we, are, we are particularly guilty nations. Right. That we are nations that, as a result, almost don't have a right to some kind of an identity. Now, you're right that it is different there than it is in Europe. In Europe, I mean, in Britain, we have never really been a country of immigration until the latter half of the 20th century. Uh, we were a very homogenous society, for better or worse, for at least a millennium and, uh, and for some time before that. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, America and Canada can be described as nations of immigration, but here we land at one of the big questions which is, hangs over us all. Does, does the fact that a country is or has been or has become a country of immigration mean that the people in that country cannot voice concern when they feel that the culture which they appreciate and like is to their mind and to their eyes under some kind of risk? Right. Is there, as it were, any warning siren we can give off? What is the early warning siren that we can sound? And, and you know, I hear a lot, I've just got back from uh, the west coast of America, and I hear this a lot, you know, we've always been a nation of immigrants, sure, but that does not mean that mass immigration or a borderless world is desirable now or will be in the future. And what we see here in Canada, as you have just mentioned, is, is, is sort of a, a new secular religion emerging where the treatment of indigenous peoples is the original sin and then a constant discussion of those, of those uh, wrongdoings are sort of taking the, the place of penance and self-flagellation. And you talk a lot about cultural confidence in your book and how a lack of cultural confidence has led to rootlessness. Can you just explain to our, our listeners what you mean by that? Because I think a lot of people here in Canada will recognize precisely what it is that you're talking about. Well, you see, uh, one of the things I'm concerned, as I say, in these deep themes that, that, I, that I tackle in different chapters in this book is that it's only European societies and societies that have derived from European societies that suffer this unbelievable self-flagellation. And uh, it, it comes, like many things, from a good place. Who wouldn't want to be self-critical? Right. Who would want to be accused of being blinkered? Um, but the point is, is that most societies don't join us in this. China is not racked by self-flagellation. Turkey has never been asked to pay for the incredible sins of the Ottoman Empire. We never hear people demanding that a modern-day Turk born in the 1990s, say, should pay for the Armenian genocide. So 
I'm not concerned with the fact that we do it so much as the fact that we are the only people who do it. Right. And then we have to wonder whether or not this obsession with our own wrongdoing is itself being used against us, that, as it were, a virtue of ours, our own self-criticism and inquiry gets used against us. You know, I think this is something which is overwhelmingly clear now in what you describe as the identity politics in North America, that young people in particular are getting this idea, have now imbibed this idea, perhaps as they will never be able to drop it, that, that, that these countries that they know and that they've benefited from themselves are so uniquely guilty that they barely need to continue. That it's what I describe as a form of parochial internationalism. Because, after all, you can't have traveled anywhere in the world if you think Canada is a terrible, bigoted society. Right. You know, you can't have gone anywhere if you think that, that Great Britain is a racist society. But this is what you do here now in a new generation of people who have been brought up, as I say, with this combination of, of self-flagellation and ignorance. And one of the things that I think you've highlighted very well is that the pre-existing problems in Europe were, were essentially just exacerbated by the, the 2015 crisis, that it essentially it, it, it put so much pressure on the existing problem that people were forced to sort of look it in the face. But what's interesting is, a lot of the discussion that I read online and the back and forth, and there's been a lot of debates on identity politics recently, is uh, there's uh, a lot of statements about how Europe, for example, we need to save our culture. Uh, one of the reasons that the culture is dying because the immigrants are coming in. And one of the things that, that I find interesting is, so uh, where my parents come from, which is the Netherlands, uh, the birth rate there collapsed. You know, it's sort of entirely voluntarily. Like the Dutch started not having kids because they didn't want to have any more kids. They gave up their sort of, you know, uh, very specifically Dutch Reformed tradition because they didn't feel like going to church anymore. And so it's very hard to figure out how to respond to a group of people who are pointing out, look, yeah, our culture is disappearing, and we have these immigrants that are moving in to make up the workforce that we didn't produce naturally as we had in generations past. But it seems more, not just the strange death of Europe, but almost the strange suicide as Europe. Well, it's funny you say that because this, um, just today as we're speaking, the German translation of this book just started to arrive in the German bookshops, and its title in German translates as The Suicide of Europe okay. rather than the, the title in English, The Strange Death of Europe. But yes, it is to a very great extent self-imposed. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a bit of good news in that, which is that things that are self-imposed, yourself can get out of. Right. Um, you know... I look at these issues like, as I said, because there are two things here. There are the people coming in and the questions that are raised and the good things they bring and the negative things they bring. But there is also the question of us. And of the two, the second is in some ways easier to address. And in the question of us, I, I, I look at this issue of why people in Europe may not be having children. This is a very, very delicate subject for all sorts of reasons that we all know. But... Um, if you look, one of the explanations given by German politicians after 2015 and by British politicians for a generation now is that, is that the reason why we need mass immigration, and we are talking here about levels of immigration which are historically unprecedented, that these levels of immigration are needed because we uh, are an aging population and are no longer having children. This is uh, wrong for so many reasons, but one of them, as I show in the book, is that if you look at opinion surveys 
um, social attitude surveys, during the periods that this is the case, um, most British women, for instance, want to have the number of children you would have if you had a replacement birth rate level. So the question is not uh, uh, how do we bring people in to be the next generation of people in our country, but why is it that, that, that uh, uh, people in this country are not having the lives and producing the lives that they want to produce and have? And I think that there is a whole set of reasons for that, some of which has to do with very um, straightforward economics, and some of which has to do, I think, with a form of cultural pessimism which has been forced upon them. Um, it, you know, if Germany needs to have more Germans in order to keep this graying population, why not allow the German people to produce those Germans before and encourage them to do so and look at ways to do so? long before you decide that the next generation of Germans should be from Eritrea. That's very interesting. And so when you have this younger generation of people that are not of the one I, I just referred to in one of my last questions where I say there was a generation that they kind of voluntarily gave up connections to their culture, and now there's a generation of people my age and younger, I'm 29, who are saying, hey, Right, we we really missed something. We lost out on not being introduced to, to British culture, to Dutch culture, right. to German culture, and so how do we get that back? And these are the, in some ways, uh, questions that have right answers and a lot of wrong answers. So yes. what is is your solution to this problem of rootlessness? Sorry for the million. Well, that is question. such an important uh, point to make because yes, I say in the book that although. I don't believe that Europeans are, you know, native racists or anything like that any more than I believe that of the average Canadian or the average American. I, I do think that if you don't deal with these very, very serious societal challenges, you leave the terrain open for potentially very bad people down the road. You, you never want uh, bad people to have good points, yes. you know? Yes. Um, and... And I don't believe that this cultural deracination you refer to uh, is endless. As you say, I think that there is a response to that. I think there is a backlash to it. Uh, and I think that that is absolutely understandable and should be encouraged. Um, people have a right uh, uh, to be shown and introduced to the culture which they were lucky enough to be born into. After all, you know, we are lucky. You know, mm -hmm. Canadians are very lucky people. British people are very lucky people. In the great lottery of life, you know, we didn't, we didn't pull out a bad number here. And so the question is, how can we be allowed to continue in that culture in a recognizable way without being, you know, some kind of sort of, you know, bigoted, exclusionary people? Now, there are all sorts of things. The first is, I say, always, always the first thing is you have to slow the migration down. But the second thing also after that is to introduce people to the idea that, you know, the people who do come, for instance, to Europe or have been in Europe um, can be shown what we have and be encouraged to be a part of it. Now, there are some people who would be racially exclusionary about that. And I think that's a despicable way of doing things because it's not about race. Fundamentally, it's about values. Yes. And I think that if you can say, look, these are our values, uh, uh, and if, if you are here from all sorts of places around the world, we would encourage you to join in these values and to recognize them. But there is a flip side to that. And the flip side is to be able to also say, and you know what? If you don't like these values, 
If you hate this society, if you think it's the worst thing on the planet, then go somewhere else because we can't keep you here and just allow you to just endlessly war against that society if you hate it that much. There has to be some kind of exclusionary part to make the inclusion bit work. And that, for all our societies, I think, is one of the great challenges in the year, years ahead. Not just how we can include people, but by, by the fact that inclusion requires exclusion. What are the things, what are the limits to what we put up with? What are the points at which we say, you know what, maybe this isn't the place for you? On cultural confidence, uh, I remember when I interviewed uh, Mark Stein on one of his, his books, I mentioned to him when he was discussing Islamic immigration that I, I was surprised by, in Ian Hersia Lee's latest book, um, she had said that Christians needed to do a better job uh, of proselytizing uh, when, mo when Muslim immigrants showed up, and I didn't even get through my question. Mark Stein cracked up, and he said, the only reason you're saying that is because an atheist sounds like a more muscular Christian than the Archbishop of Canterbury does these days. <laughs> and that seems to me to be rather the case, and this, this pessimism. I've also interviewed Peter Hitchens quite a few times, and his advice to young people, mm. as you know, is just to immigrate. Um, I, I, love, I love Peter's writing, but one of my friends described his columns as a rainy day when you had plans outdoors. Um, <laughs> and, and that's simply because he, he talks about a lot of the same problems you does, and his conclusion is just utter pessimism. So, especially for, for conservative-minded people, it's hard not to get caught into this pessimism you're talking about. How do we, how do we take a look at the analysis of these problems and come to a, a, a conclusion that says, you know what, there is hope for the future. Immigration isn't the solution. We can rebuild something. Well, you know, it starts from realizing, as I say, that central fact of how lucky we are at what we have. And the fact that, you know, the, in, the, in the famous uh, dictum of Edmund Burke, uh, that, that, that society and civilization are not just uh, about what we are doing now, but a pact between the dead, the living, and those yet to be born. Yes. And that in that situation, you don't have the right to just decide that you're going to hand over to the next generation something like a large version of Mogadishu. You don't have the right to do that because you were lucky enough to have been born into a place that was very different yourself. And at the very least, you pass on something that is recognizable and, if possible, something which is better. Now, I think there is no reason at all why people uh, can't, can't, uh, can't join in that enterprise and be involved in that. But... But it starts from that realization. It starts from that realization of the extraordinary luck we have here. Um, I'm often asked about my attitudes towards patriotism and national, nationalism and so on. And I always say that, you know, my own view of all of this is that these are slightly wrong interpretations of a question. And that really one's attitude towards one's culture should be in the terms of gratitude gratitude for what we have, and therefore a desire to pass it on. And in order to be um, uh, energized in that, as I say, there's nothing uh, uh, clearer than looking around at the other options. I mean, you know, why is it, I say this in the book at one point, why is it that so many young people, when they reach out for meaning, do not find it in the historic traditions and the historic religion of their societies, but and this has been documented here in the UK, and I give some of it in the book, 
uh, but are, for instance, attracted to Islam only for one reason, which is that they don't find uh, in Christianity a, a, um, a belief system that seems very confident in its own beliefs. So why would you join it? Right. it it's, it's, it's like buying a car whose owner says he's not sure it works any longer. Um, and, and, and so the question is, why, why, what can we do to make sure that when people reach out for meaning, they reach out for the better forms of meaning, at the very least, and not... I mean, as I say, I give the example of Islam, and obviously for Europe, uh, Islam is proving the hardest bit of the whole multicultural melting pot to swallow. Right. It, it, it's finding it very hard, and not, I think, because it's our own fault. But in that situation... Why it's it, 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 it's Islam at the moment, but it could also be it, it could be almost anything. It's another point. Mark Steins made this point as well. You know, that almost anything that was culturally confident at this stage could step into this vacuum, and therefore anyone concerned uh, about passing on uh, uh, the traditions and and the freedoms and the liberties that we have. Uh, should be concerned to address these fundamental principles and these fundamental questions. Well, Douglas, thanks so much for joining us, and tell our listeners where they can find your writing. So, uh, yes, uh, The Strange Death of Europe is the name of the book. The subtitle is Immigration, Identity, and Islam. It's, it's the number one bestseller in the United Kingdom and in various other countries. And uh, I also write at the Spectator magazine in uh, the UK, that's spectator.co.uk, and many other venues. Well, thanks again so much for taking the time. It's been a great pleasure.